This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is New Books and National Security, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Beth Windish. I'm joined by Daniel Aldrich, the author of the book Black Wave, How Networks and Governance Shaped Japan's 311 Disasters. Daniel Aldrich is the director of the Security and Resilience Studies Program and professor of political science and public policy at Northeastern University. Daniel, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. The book starts with a vivid description of the three disasters that hit Japan. Can you remind us of the events of March 2011? Sure. So it was mid-afternoon on a Friday, and there was a massive earthquake offshore, 9.0, so powerful from outer space, the entire Earth actually jumped. And that quake by itself actually did not do that much damage. Most buildings in Japan are built up to a really strong building code. Very few people were hurt even in that earthquake. But unfortunately, the earthquake was the start of two other disasters. One was a massive set of tsunami, huge waves, some as tall as 60 feet, that came ashore about 45 minutes later. And then the combination of the earthquake and tsunami set off the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant meltdowns. Three of those reactors melted down within about 48 hours. So Japan had to deal with the deaths of roughly 18,400 people from the tsunami and evacuating almost half a million people at its height from those three disasters. And how did you become interested in writing about disaster and social ties, and in this case in Japan in particular? Yeah, so disasters and I have a strange history. Uh, In fact, in 2005, my family and I had moved to New Orleans, Louisiana, and we had pretty bad timing. We moved down in July. We had about five and a half, six weeks down there before Hurricane Katrina arrived. And Hurricane Katrina shut down the schools my kids were going to go to. They shut down my university, Tulane, which I never taught at that year. They destroyed our home, our hard drives, our car, all of our paper records, our clothing, basically everything that we had, but one small bag of stuff. And beginning with that personal event of going through a shock, I began to wonder what does it mean to recover now? What is resilience going to look like for us as a family, for our neighborhood, for the, for the city of New Orleans? And since 2005, I've been working on this broader question of what helps communities and cities build resilience to shocks. I had just finished another project uh, back in 2011 when I got the horrible news that this huge uh, triple disasters had hit Japan. And I've spent a lot of time in Japan uh, since I was around 16 years old. I I was spending most of my summers, I would say, about four and a half, five years total in Japan. And of course, I've got a lot of friends, uh, colleagues over there. 
And immediately I went on the first uh, exploration mission from ERI, the Earthquake Engineering Research Institute. I went with them about a month later after March 11th. So a very personal interest in Japan. Not to mention, you know, for those of us on the outside, Japan has so many lessons to teach us. Right? Here's a country sitting in the ring of fire. It deals with earthquakes. It deals with tsunami. It deals with all kinds of disasters. And they still have this level of deaths, 18,400 people getting killed. So for me, there's so many things important for us to learn from this shock. And I want to go into your findings in detail, but I also wanted to ask you a little bit about your method with this book. And you have several appendices with your interviews and some of the statistical tables. Could you talk a little bit about your methodology and how you incorporated these different types of information into a very um, social science kind of study? Sure. You know, my teachers back in grad school always told me there's never one way to understand a problem. If you only have a single tool, whether it's doing interviews or regression analysis or mapping or focus groups, whatever you're going to do, that tool by itself will only capture really one part of the problem. And they always encourage me to think about how do you better understand this it's usually through multiple methods. So I knew early on I wanted to speak with as many survivors as I could even the families of those who passed away, and of course, NGOs, mayors, decision makers, and engineers. But I also wanted to find broader patterns that would be hard to see just from those interviews and conversations. So I began collecting data on around 140 different communities along the coast. And then as I was finishing up the book, I realized I wanted to know more if Japan's overall approach were unique. So I began to look at other countries as well. I captured around 130 countries over time, how the combination of governance and democracy had helped them handle these kind of shocks. So what I tried to do for the book was make the argument very clear and the evidence as clear as possible. For people who are really geeky like me, who love numbers and tables and all that kind of stuff, I've got, as you mentioned, a lot of appendices in there, you know, the, the original numbers. And in fact, uh, my other thing I was trained for with graduate school was the really importance of being transparent and open. So all the data I used in the book, all of the numbers, all of that stuff that we captured, it's all posted online at the Harvard Dataverse Network, the DVN. And there, a lot of scholars like myself who want the, the public or other scholars to have access to it have put their information for everyone to access. Yeah, that's very cool. And I want to dive into your framework, but I remember um, we actually were introduced through my uh, partner who is involved with Chai Hack Night, and you were sharing some of your data on social capital through that Dataverse. You know, that's it's an interesting uh, take on getting that data out there. And have you seen other people starting to work with that information? I know some of it you've only put out recently with some of the papers on social capital. So it, it may it may be still too early. Actually, we were really thrilled. The data set that we put out just about two and a half months ago that tries to capture across the continental United States different levels of bonding, bridging, and linking social capital, that actually has been downloaded around 200 times so far. So, you know, for us in academia, that's, you know, that's like Harry Potter level sales. That's really great. So, uh, you know, it's not going to be, uh, you know, necessarily making any money. This is all free. But it's really important, I think, any kind of scientist, any kind of journalist, someone making a claim that the way they got there be open and obvious to other people. I think one of the challenges we often have is we get in a fight with someone, we get in a disagreement. It's not quite clear to us what we're arguing from. You know, where's the evidence that we have? And it's really important. My students know this uh, to make everything as open and, and clear as possible. If you can't publish the data, 
maybe you shouldn't be making that argument. And this, this is what we try to do. And of course, you know, if there's individual information in there, it's de-anonymized, sorry, anonymized. <laughs> we do our best to make sure that nothing is going to go out there that shouldn't be out there. But yeah, that, that uh, thing, what you mentioned just now, that data set captured at the county level, all 3,000 counties across America, and how connected they are in terms of bonding, bridging, and linking ties. And so we should definitely talk about those because the the book provides that framework for understanding the different types of networks that help us in both everyday life and the disasters. So I wanted to explore those three types of ties you identify because I think understanding the difference between them is really important. And and the first one you describe, I, maybe I can ask you to to tell us about bonding social capital first. Sure. Yeah. So one of my favorite examples comes from a book by Kai Erickson, who wrote a, a book called Everything in Its Path. And he talked about how neighbors were so close, so friendly, so much like family, that they would come into your house, open your refrigerator, and grab a drink <laughs> without even saying anything to you. They just walk in. It reminds me of my teenage kids, right, who come back from college, right, just to eat food from our refrigerator. So those really close ties, it might be family, it might be extended family, a cousin. You know, a lot of times in African-American communities, people are uncles or aunts, people who are really close to you. That is what we call a bonding tie. And oftentimes bonding ties are individuals who speak the same kind of way. They have the same kind of training or background, ethnicity, race, religion, the fancy word for this is homophily. It basically means you know, it's easiest for us to get along with people who look and sound like us. You know, obviously, if I don't speak Japanese and I fly to Japan and I, I touch down, it's very unlikely I'll be able to make friends with someone who doesn't speak English. It's really just too hard. Um, so it's likely if I fly to Japan, my colleagues there will also be English speakers. Now, I do speak Japanese, so I'm lucky in that aspect. But oftentimes we have communities in North America it might be Haitian Creole, it might be Mandarin, right? Individuals who've come from other countries, oftentimes their closest connections are individuals who share that same culture and that same linguistic background. These are people who are like us. What kind of factors can either increase or decrease those types of ties in a community? Well, that's a great question. Wow. Yeah, that's that's a huge question. And in fact, I don't even try to tackle that. But a lot of things, I think, are likely to do that. And we have evidence from other scholars that we know. <clears throat> One would be past interactions, uh, bo- both with authorities and with the community. So if I move into a community here in Boston and no one wants to speak with me, or, I, or my child goes to a public school and he or she is bullied or uh, said ugly things to because of their ethnicity or race, certainly that will dampen my ability to make those kind of close ties. Oftentimes, bonding ties are almost indigenous in that I'm born into a family, a biological family at least, or maybe I'm adopted to a family. Those ties typically tend to be lifelong. So again, brothers, sisters, aunts, cousins, and so forth. Those bonding ties are hard to, to, to damage typically unless you get in a fight like we did at a Thanksgiving dinner table. But more broadly, those ties are ones that come pretty, pretty easily, bonding ties. There is another type of tie called a bridging tie. Uh, in contrast, where bonding ties people who are like me, bridging ties explicitly are people who are different than me. So it might be a different race, religion, ethnicity. It might be they're from another country, uh, or it could be they're different even political party nowadays, right? Unfortunately, because of polarization, it might be everyone around me is the same party. All of my close friends are the same party. So bridging ties can come from all kinds of interesting places. They can come from a workplace. So let's say you have a job at a at a plant or manufacturing facility, you might be people from different backgrounds. They can come from clubs as well, uh, churches, mosques, and synagogues. We might share the same religion, but maybe I was born in Afghanistan and you were born here in Ohio. 
So uh, churches, synagogues, mosques, institutions are often really strong sources of bridging ties. But both bonding and bridging are horizontal, meaning that everyone in these relationships have more or less the same level of power. So for example, you're not going to call me and say, hey, Daniel, I've got a parking ticket in, you know, in Chicago. Can you help me out of it? I don't have any of that kind of power. But the third type of tie uh, we call linking social ties. Linking are vertical ties to people in power. So that would be if you knew Mary Lightfoot, for example, or you knew someone in the parking division, whatever that's called, uh, and maybe you could call and say, you know, I parked my car for too long. I made a left on red, whatever it was. Can you help me out of this? So those kind of ties really involve a differential in power and authority. It might be me, someone like an academic, knowing the chancellor of a university. It might be someone in New York City, knowing the governor of New York, right? A lot of power there. Or it could even be if you know someone in FEMA or uh, the federal government these days. So these bonding, bridging, and linking ties, the interesting thing about them is, you know, they work very differently. Bonding ties are the easiest. Again, because you look and sound the same, making friends like that is pretty, pretty straightforward. Bridging ties are harder to make. They're often called thin or weak ties because we, we use them less often, right? It's simply reality is you're around your spouse, you're around your close childhood friends or your parents simply more often than let's say a work friend you only see once in a while when you have coffee together. Or maybe a friend of a friend that you don't know so well, but has helped you out of situations. But those bridging and linking ties, those less regular ties, those are so critical during shocks. And in part in the book, I try to really trace out how a mix of these ties, bonding, bridging, and linking, are so critical at different moments during a shock. And it's interesting with bonding and linking, it seems like there's a power element implicit in that vertical versus horizontal. Oh, yes, absolutely. And and again, you know, I don't really have any linking ties at all. I don't have any friends on speed dial who are Hollywood actors, or I don't have any friends in in high places. Uh, I know people who do, though, Right. I know someone who knows the mayor here, for example. I know some, I've got a friend in San Francisco who knows the governor. Uh, those ties definitely involve power relationships in that the person who is in decision-making ability can probably help you out of a scrape, especially during a shock, or provide resources. And part of the book really tries to trace, is there a way that these different ties, horizontal and vertical, can bring you information, resources, or collaboration at times when not having them might mean you're stalled out of that recovery process. And the book really goes through from even the preparedness before the event to the immediate aftermath to the recovery. How did you see these different types of ties play out in Japan in March 2011? Yeah, it's pretty amazing. You know, as you mentioned, even before the shock arrived. So imagine between the earthquake and the arrival of the tsunami, it's around 40 to 45 minutes, depending on where you're living in Tohoku, Japan. And you talk about the, the decision time of do you go pick people up or or the training that some of these folks have that you just go. Exactly. I mean, that's that's rough. Yeah. It, yeah. If, if you're a Japanese school child anywhere in Japan, your school has had regular drills probably once every month or so. Um, and the idea there is called Tendenko which literally means to flee by yourself. So if you feel an earthquake and you're anywhere near a body of water, you need to flee uphill by yourself, not stopping for your dog or your pictures or your phone or even for parents or friends. Tendenko's training is get up and go by yourself. Now that's that's really good advice, honestly. It really is because it's, it's pretty obvious. If you go toward the ocean at a time where there could be a tsunami arriving, that could be a big problem. But 
what we found though empirically, and this, this is from all the interviews that we did, all the surveys, we found that many of the people who had survived, especially the elderly and vulnerable, they had only survived because a neighbor, a friend, a caregiver had violated that training of Tendenko, had run back and gotten them out of a dangerous place. The reality was most people, when that earthquake struck, were in the flat, right by the ocean locations in their towns. In some cases, they were literally on the fishing docks. In some cases, they were in homes or businesses along the shore. When the earthquake hit, most people were very vulnerable. If they stayed there, they would probably lose their lives. And this is where the bonding ties came in really important. If you knew someone nearby, let's say my neighbor is Mrs. Tanaka, and I know her and she knows me, and I know that she's not mobile. She's in a wheelchair. Maybe she's in bed. I'm also thinking if I don't get Mrs. Tanaka, she may still be here if a tsunami arrives. And of course, at the same time, by the way, the earthquake struck, everyone's phone, radio, television set, broadcast speaker, all of those different media are saying, flee, get out of dangerous areas, get out. You described the the high pitched noise that it makes. It made it, it's very vivid in the writing that I'm like, man, that must be just intense. <laughs> it's a horrible noise. Yeah, it's a, I've, I've heard it. Unfortunately, I've I've had several moments actually. I take students to Japan over the summer, not this summer obviously because of COVID nineteen, but most summers, and we go visit these locations. And actually, we've had we've had tsunami warnings when we've been on the coast. It is a terrifying sound. If you own a cell phone, it is impossible to ignore. Your cell phone will turn on and make that sound. So for these elderly people along the coast, uh, first of all, many of them don't have a cell phone. That's the, the simple reality. Like, you know, my mom and dad only recently really got into the technology stuff. So many people don't have the cell phones. And if you as a neighbor of an elderly person, someone who's vulnerable, don't go save them, it's quite possible they'll st- still be there. So what we found happened was the following. Oftentimes, neighbors put their own lives at risk to come knock on doors of the elderly to come say, Mrs. Tanaka, there's a wave coming, please come with me. And if the person couldn't walk, they would put them on their back, on a bicycle, in the back of a van, all kinds of crazy creative stuff to get them out of those harm's way. And you know, I would argue pretty strongly that the 18,400 deaths that we saw by the tsunami, the vast majority of those were in fact deaths we could have stopped had those communities had stronger bonding ties. That is, everyone who was elderly that I spoke to who got out, and I, t- I tell some, some pretty hair- hair-raising stories in the book uh, about people who were stuck in cars underwater, people who were stuck in their second floors. Um, In almost all those cases with the elderly and vulnerable, what saved them were these bonding ties, people who could get them out of harm's way and willing to sacrifice perhaps their own lives to do so. Well, and I know we're talking about Black Wave, but your work also makes me think of Heat Wave. And I know the author did a review on on the back of your book. And that book talks about Chicago's 1995 Heat Wave. And when you're talking, it, it makes me think about how that book especially looks at the way disasters impact the elderly as well. Exactly. El- elderly and vulnerable. And, and you mentioned in, in Japan that the aging population is a significant factor, and we're seeing the isolation of elderly people as a risk factor in the U.S. as well. What do we need to do to better protect older and, and as you're saying, vulnerable people from disasters? Yeah, there's a lot of interesting uh interventions right now around the world. And I've been lucky to be involved with a few of them. In Japan, there's a program called Ibasho, which means my place. And it's a community center-based program run bottom-up by the elderly in vulnerable communities. 
And the idea is really simple. You know, as you mentioned, many vulnerable, both in Japan, but also in America, really don't get out that much. They literally don't leave their homes because perhaps they can't, but also it could be they don't really feel a lot of connections in the area. Maybe their children are in a big city far away. Maybe they're in an old folks home. So Ibasho's job is to build social ties to broaden the network of those elderly people. And in fact, in, at the end of the book, I talk about this very briefly, but we've done a lot of research with Ibasho and it turns out they're very successful at building a broader social network at giving the elderly a sense of community and purpose, and also raising their belief in efficacy, that their presence in the community can make a difference. So for those individuals involved in Ibasho who, ha- who have new ties, who now know new neighbors, they're much more likely to be among those who are resilient to this kind of shock. You mentioned Heatwave, which is a fantastic book by Eric Klanenberg. You know, Eric argued an, a number of years ago, using qualitative methods, that in Chicago, it wasn't just being elderly that meant you were at risk from a heat wave. It was a combination of being elderly and alone, elderly without connections. Elderly individuals who had connections often were helped out of their out of their hot neighborhoods, out of their hot places with no air conditioning, into a nearby pool or into a nearby uh, community center or a public hall where they could get cooled down. Many people were fine. But the 750 people who died, unfortunately, those were individuals in Chicago who were both elderly and didn't have those networks. So building up networks, uh, this process of Ibasho, getting the elderly involved. Uh, We have a few different projects also. In Australia, they have something called Neighbor Day. And it sounds weird, but the reality is, you know, if you think about it, how many of us in urban areas, I know I live in Boston, you're in Chicago, how many of us really know our neighbors? And if there were a fire, if there were a heart attack, would we be able to knock on that door and say, hey, it's me, it's Daniel, I need your help right now. Drop everything. Come with me. Or the person be like, oh, I'd love to help you, but I've never seen you before in my life. I'm opening the door. Right. So Neighbor Day in Australia, this very straightforward idea. Many cities like Melbourne, for example, uh, they need to build those connections. So there's an entire day in the calendar built around community activities, knocking on doors, making new friends. You know, hopefully when you move into a neighborhood in the olden days, you've got that little basket of goodies. Right. Maybe a bottle of wine if you're lucky, maybe a cake or something like that. So unfortunately, I would imagine most of us listening right now didn't get that when we moved into our, na- our communities. Maybe you did. Maybe you have nice neighbors. But I didn't get that when I moved in. right? And building these ties requires effort. It requires vulnerability as well. Because, of course, no one wants to knock on a door and be told, oh, I'm not opening the door to you, buddy. Forget it. You, know, you have to really put in that time. You have to see the person regularly, get to know them. So anyway, these are things we can do. Ibasho is one project, NeighborFest. Uh, there's even one in San Francisco called NeighborFest, which provides around $5,000 to a block in San Francisco that holds a party there for the residents. It's a very simple idea. San Francisco cannot possibly afford to retrofit every building against the coming massive earthquake that will be hitting them in the next 30 years. But they can afford to give that money to neighborhoods so that every neighborhood's got to organize. Okay, we're going to have a party. We're going to block off the street to traffic. We're going to bring in a bounce house for the kids. We'll get barbecue with, I don't know, tofu and whatever they eat in San Francisco these days. And everyone in the community has got to get involved. Someone's got to bring the dip. Someone's got to bring the guacamole. Someone's got to get the kids safe, right? So that process also gets you to know your neighbors. Very deliberate strategy they had to try to increase those connections in communities that unfortunately may not be speaking to each other right now. So we've talked a good amount about preparedness and response. I wanted to ask you a little bit more about linking social capital because you had some interesting observations about the differences in communities in Japan based on their linking social capital. Can you talk more about that? Sure. Yeah, this this really was uh, driven home to me when I visited a city. I call it in the book Coastal City, and you'll see why in a second. Uh, Coastal City 
was a very small community, less than 20,000 people, and relatively poor, almost all fishing and farming. So no big universities, no no Toyota plants, nothing like you would imagine for manufacturing. And after the earthquake and tsunami and meltdowns, their population really dwindled. And I went back there about a year later, and I saw this massive structure stretching from the mountains outside the city all the way downtown to the city itself. And I, I was watching this. I thought it was a bridge. I got closer. It was just making this huge racket, earth-shatteringly loud. It turned out this city had built a massive conveyor belt to convey the crushed remains of the mountains outside the city to the downtown to raise the downtown by 34 feet so that the next time a tsunami arrived, the entire community be, would be raised up. And the challenge is, though, this, this, this conveyor belt cost $220 million U.S., which is about 10 times the annual budget of that city. And they said that weren't enough. They had another $3 billion coming into them to help rebuild the city. So I'm watching this happen, and I'm thinking, like, what is going on? No other community in Japan had this level of funding. It turns out that one of the members of this community, this coastal city community, knew someone in the cabinet office running that restoration agency, called them just after the triple disaster and said, we want to be the paradigm of reconstruction. Can you help us? And his friend from school said, yes. And they got all that money. They got the money to knock down the mountains and grind them up into dust and put it downtown. They got the money to rebuild everything. They are one of the now most well-funded recovery projects. And began to look around these different communities over and over again, the best predictor of recovery, building homes back, getting infrastructure up and running, getting schools back in gear, having businesses reopen, it came from having vertical ties, these linking ties. If your community had a large number of powerful politicians, I don't know, think of Cuomo or Harry Reid or uh, what's that guy, Chuck Schumer, right? These long-term politicians who know where all the bodies are buried, they're able to cajole and threaten and coerce businesses and other people to do what they want. If you had a lot of those kind of boosters on your side, then your community would actually build back better in Japan. You'd build back more schools, more businesses, more roads. If you only had no or one of these kind of people, I found your recovery would be about three quarters of what it was before. Meaning, unfortunately, these vertical ties really bring in the resources. They bring home the bacon in a very measurable way after a shock. So how do we square the circle on the idea that who you know matters and the notion of fairness and, um, I guess, wrestling with ideas about corruption? Yeah. I mean, I've actually done research in India as well after the 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami. And I can say there as well, all the evidence showed it was not a question of need or equity that drove distribution to people who had gone through the tsunami there. It was really about connections, who you knew. And unfortunately, time and time again, data is showing this as well in North America. There's a study by NPR about six months ago that showed in hurricane hit areas with the same amount of damage, African-American populated communities get less aid than majority white communities. So it's a great point you're making, which is unfortunately politics are still very much intertwined, not only in being ready for the shock, right? Not only having things like 
doing COVID-19, having PPE, having tests available, right? Having the ability to have a mandatory mask requirement, that level of preparedness, but also in the reconstruction process, who gets the PPP grants, which kind of firms and businesses are ones getting the money. Time and time again, and over space and time, I would say, we are seeing that those vertical ties, who you know, really drive the recovery. And that kind of ties into the other piece of the equation in your book, not just the networks, but governance. How did governance play a role, especially in the immediate choices regarding evacuation in Japan? Yeah, the you know we, we think of Japan as a well-ordered country, communitarian, you know, past disasters have hit it. That's all true. The reality, unfortunately, though, there was huge variation, especially around the nuclear reactor area on what people did after these shocks broke out. Some mayors waited for guidance from the central government. And unfortunately, the longer they waited, the more risks their population faced from being exposed to radiation leaking from Fukushima Daiichi as the meltdown hurt, as, as it happened. Other mayors didn't wait. They commandeered buses. They went around with loudspeakers. They handed out potassium iodine pills without waiting. These mayors who had the courage to go on their own and not wait for guidance, they got their people out much more quickly. And I found in a number of different communities that the level of engagement, the level of governance really varied. You know, in some cases, mayors literally would sleep under their desks for the months that followed. And some of them even lost their spouses to the shocks, but still kept coming back to help their neighbors out. Other governance was not as, let's say, courageous or obvious. Others waited for the herd. They didn't, they didn't really take the lead. So that really makes a big difference in the same way that right now, you know, some mayors and governors are feuding over who has the power, for example, to make a, a, a whether it's a COVID-19 mask requirement or so forth. Um, some mayors are just letting things happen, letting sort of people do what they want. Others are really taking a position and leading from the front. So what I found was in different communities, some mayors had that leading from the front approach, others not so much. You mentioned COVID-19. Have you seen any of the other themes you observed in Japan resonate with you in these recent events? Yeah, unfortunately, yes, uh, in a lot of different ways. So my lab at Northeastern right now has been tracking COVID-19 outcomes both here in North America, but also in Japan. Uh, Again, we have a long relationship with them. And we have found that these bonding, bridging, and linking ties are strongly correlated, connected to COVID-19 outcomes. So that communities that primarily have bonding ties, where all your information comes from people that are like you, those communities, unfortunately, seem to have worse COVID-19 outcomes than communities that have more of these diverse weak ties, their bridging and linking ties. And part of what we think is happening, both in North America and Japan, is that people who have different sources for their information. For example, let's say I, I, I listen to the CDC, I watch my local news station, I get the newspaper, I talk to my neighbors, I talk to my, my kids' school, right? I've got multiple sources of information. I'm going to get a pretty strong set of maybe diverse, but also pretty strong set of op- options of what I could do. If I only listen to a single news source, maybe only one certain news channel, one cable news channel, I'm going to hear the same kind of message. Uh, it might be, let's say, diminishing the threat. It might be telling me there's no big deal. Um, And we think there's a huge difference if the message that you get is from a wide variety of sources telling you, this is a risk, wear a mask, don't go to work if you don't have to, don't join large-scale gatherings outside, don't have COVID-19 parties, or you get one message from one group of people that look and sound like you that says, hey, Daniel, this is no big deal, it's like the flu, it'll be over by spring, you know, don't don't be a sheep, all that kind of stuff. 
So we think, unfortunately, those echo chambers of bonding social capital here can have a negative impact. That is to say, you're not going to change behaviors. You might just go to work. You might not wear a mask. You might uh, go to an outdoor con- a concert of some kind of event. In contrast with people getting their sources from different things, you know, if you hear from different people, a federal government, CDC official, a state level person, a local mayor, your friend, the doctor, and all of them are saying, yeah, Daniel, I know it, it feels like it's been a long time, but you should keep the mask on. We think it's more likely that you'll take on those mitigation processes. So yes, we have found uh, in this COVID-19 that these bonding, bridging, and linking ties seem to have very similar impact. So as you talk about these different ties and evaluating information, it makes me think about kind of critical thinking versus expertise and listening to experts, but also questioning common knowledge or or things that are are thought to be the way we should do things. And a really good example of that is when you talk about the failure at Fukushima and that the backup mechanisms for the nuclear facility were done to a standard, but they weren't appropriate for the environment. As a Midwesterner, putting important equipment in the basement makes a whole lot of sense, right? right? Tornadoes. But you talk about how that's a mismatch in Japan, right? Tornadoes. So how do these ties help us when we're trying to navigate complex technical information, which we may think we're doing things correctly, but sometimes we need to stop and kind of question that conventional wisdom and say like, hey, we're in Japan. We're not going to have a tornado. Why do we have the generator in the basement? Exactly. how do, how do we use our ties to to navigate these difficult situations and sometimes push back? Yeah, for me, I think one of the biggest benefits of multiple types of connections, um, one of the big is is really information, and that information coming from different sources and different perspectives can really push me to think about my own quote expert opinion. And as you mentioned, really. Well said. The the Japanese uh, nuclear power disaster was completely man-made in the sense that back in the 1960s, the engineers who were trained by uh, American-based engineers put the backup systems, both the batteries and diesel generators that could keep water flowing through nuclear power plant and therefore keep it cool, even in the case of a shutdown where there's no electricity, in the basement because in North America, where most of the plants had been built, uh, tornadoes were the biggest risk that people faced. So it makes a lot of sense. If the threat's coming from above, you put these systems in the basement, they'll be safe. And of course, they would have been safe from a tornado. Unfortunately, uh, when the water overtook the walls on site and flooded those sites, you were you had no backups left. They were completely destroyed. And at that moment, of course, what you really would have wanted to do would be have not only local knowledge, talking about what are the local threats here we face on the coast of Japan. You know, how often are tsunami? Well, once every 60 years or so from past geological records, once every 60 years. So if they talk to local residents at that moment, rather than going off the American expertise, that might have prevented this entire disaster. More broadly, though, right, think about most of the threats that we face, whether it's a pandemic right now or, or other things, the more regularly we're able to hear different perspectives on what's going on, right, that really gives us a chance to push back on what assumptions am I making, right? What do I think that I know? There's been a lot of research, unfortunately, that shows uh, experts are often the worst at changing their own perspectives, changing their frameworks. Experts might do the, the, the wrong thing multiple times because they think there's no need for them to listen to anyone else. And this is a problem for all of us, right, who think we know something. Uh, having an open mind at a moment when we're open to input. That will really only come if people talking to you speak with a different voice. 
The other piece of this related to governance and especially regulation in the nuclear environment relates to government. And your discussion of trust in government, I think, is especially relevant. How does trust or lack of trust in government institutions impact preparedness and response? Yeah, this is a a huge topic. So I I saw this a few years ago from a colleague who'd been working on this idea that what happens if the government tells you something like, Daniel, it's not safe in Boston, you need to evacuate. And I don't really trust them, right? So I'm going to probably not listen to that first evacuation order or maybe the second one. Maybe it might take coercion to get me out or maybe I'll even stay put. So this research made me think, you know, what's going to happen though if the government fumbles a response initially, that is, they make some obvious choices to hide information or to downplay it. You can think right now, for example, if the CDC isn't getting information on COVID-19, it's going to the government instead. Is that going to downplay this information? So what we found in Japan was the following. Japan used to be among the highest trust societies in terms of people's trust in the government. That unfortunately all dropped participatively after 311 when the government began downplaying the risks from the the radiation, didn't even call the meltdowns a meltdown. They didn't want to use that terminology for fear it would cause a panic and hid information that could have helped people evacuate in a safer way. There was a program called Speedy, S-P-E-E-D-I, which was a computer simulation that can basically tell you in this spot, radiation is high, medium, or low based on wind patterns and all that kind of stuff. That was up and running. There was data coming in from it. The government did not share that information with its local governments, even though it shared that with, for example, U.S. authorities who often have U.S. troops in Japan. So the information was available, it was shareable, but when people found out that they had been sitting and sometimes for days in hot spots for radiation because didn't, they didn't get the information, that really made them furious. So you've seen in Japan since nine years ago, since the 311 disasters, a massive lack of trust what the government says. And that, of course, means the next time there's a shock, the next time there's information coming from the government, the average person may now think, is this really true? Is it really true that COVID-19 is a threat? Or is it really true I need to evacuate? And then you have a huge problem. Because even if the government does have real information, and does its very best to share it in a clear, transparent way, the average person may no longer believe it's believable. So once that trust has been eroded, it seems to repair that as incredibly difficult and in some ways may make social ties even more important. That's right. I think once you damage the, the bond between civil society and and the state, it is incredibly hard to win that back. I can think of all kinds of examples right now, certainly in places like in Syria, where the government demonstrated almost a genocidal approach. Literally millions of people fled that country rather than waiting around for things to get better. Uh, we see all around the world in Sudan as well, when governments or, or the Rohingya in Bangladesh when the government uh, makes a group feel unwelcome or not safe, uh, it is very challenging. Right, you know, right now, the government of Bangladesh has called for the Rohingya to return. Uh, I hope that won't happen personally, and I, I don't think it's going to. But again, you see regularly that once a government makes a huge error like that, uh, the, you know, in Japan's case, I would say they probably had the best interests in mind. They really did believe that releasing information might cause a panic. Now, if they'd read the books by people like Rebecca Solnit, right, who's read, written the book A Paradise Born in Hell, she makes it very clear that during a shock, the only people who really panic tend to be the elites, people in power. The average person, I saw this in Hurricane Katrina, the average person on the streets, even as the house was being flooded, was not running around and screaming, right? We're trying to help each other out, we're trying to work together and get out safely. 
In contrast, Mayor Nagin was having a breakdown. The governor wasn't cooperating. All kinds of stuff was happening in terms of political governance. That definitely broke down. But on the ground itself, same thing in Fukushima. People that I talked to said that we were very calm. If we had a car, we got in to drive out of there or we got in the bus they brought for us. No one was running around and screaming. No one was panicking. But the elites were so concerned that if people had the full information about what was happening, they wouldn't be able to respond. They didn't want to share it. And I think that's really a problem. You have to trust that people in whatever society you live in have the intellect and maturity to take the truth. You also speak about the difficulty that poor and vulnerable communities have in rebuilding after a disaster. And many times conversations about community resiliency can include assumptions about the wealth and mobility of the people living in those communities. How can your research on social capital shift the conversation about resiliency and foster investments where it's needed? Yeah, this is a huge problem. You know, a lot of the work that's been done, especially on something really obvious like climate change, that's that's an easy one, um, has been on physical infrastructure rebuilding. That is to say, if Boston is flooding or Venice is flooding, we build a seawall. As you probably know, Venice has one called Moses, which is kind of cute, right? He split the waters. Uh, Boston planned a $2 billion seawall in Boston Harbor. Fortunately, that, one's, that one was canceled. But a lot of the initial responses from, from governments to shocks is to build some kind of physical infrastructure. It doesn't take into account local inf- interest or preferences. doesn't take into account social infrastructure. So our lab has done our best to push decision makers to think through how can you build social infrastructure in communities that will make you better prepared for these kinds of shocks? So imagine, for example, for Boston residents along the ocean, rather than either making them live on stilts, which is certainly one approach in Homa, Louisiana, for example, uh, you have school systems where you have climate change as part of the educational process. You teach about what water is going to do over the next few years, and you build a cadre of kids who are citizen scientists who measure flooding when it comes in, who think through ways to get the community involved who are involved in zoning, well, not the kids, but the parents involved in zoning matters. Think through who are we zoning? What are we zoning for? How is infrastructure being built in our area? Do we have blue-green infrastructure, parks that can serve as water conservation areas, or parks that can hold water if it does flood? So I think there are a lot of creative ways we can involve the community if it trusts their government to be using these social ties and building cooperative plans that are bottom-up. The other thing about this more broadly is where you have the trust of the people, where they believe you, they're going to be involved and support your plans. If no one thinks your plan is going to work or you want, they weren't consulted at all, good luck getting that to be a plan that will actually be effective and longstanding. There's a long, you know, history is littered with many, many projects that were top-down plans that the government envisioned would work really well. I'm thinking, for example, the, uh, the Road Home Project in Louisiana after Hurricane Katrina, all kinds of projects that had no bottom-up involvement. It's so critical that local, regional, and national decision makers include people, include residents and citizens of all types, poor, rich, uh, young, old, in making these decisions of what to do and get their input. Oftentimes, the community knows better than some asset expert like me what they need to do after a shock. So how is Japan doing today in terms of the recovery from the, those three disasters? So there, there are some parts of Japan you could go to today. Um, the community is near Fukushima. And it would be hard to see any progress from nine years ago. In fact, the opposite. There are homes that have now completely fallen over. Weeds are going through cracks in the road because there's been no one coming back to those communities. So as they're abandoned ghost towns, it's terrifying. In fact, you can find on the internet all kinds of pictures of these uh, abandoned communities where no one's allowed to live right now. Those communities haven't moved. 
Other communities like Sendai up north, uh, coastal city that I've been talking about with this massive conveyor belt, they're doing pretty well. Some of the bigger cities have actually drawn in new population. There's been a big outflux from people in these coastal areas to more inland communities, people are looking for safe and hazard-free or at least less hazardous areas to live in. Um, overall, though, Japan faces some really impossible-to-stop challenges. Those include a graying demographic challenge. Most people aren't having kids or at least if they're having, it's not replacement rates, so the population as a whole is falling. Most cities are shrinking, so the number of schools and communities is getting smaller and smaller as schools have to merge to, uh, to serve their few population that's left. And many of these coastal areas have a brain drain where people who have smarts, young students who go to college, they leave these areas where there is no infrastructure for education, and they go to the big cities, Osaka, Tokyo, Nagoya, wherever. So unfortunately, even the communities that are doing well are struggling against these long-term, probably impossible to stop kind of challenges as a country. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we let you go, would you share what you're working on now? Yes. So we're very excited. Uh, our lab at Northeastern, we have a few different projects, uh, one in Paraguay, one in Mexico, and one in Mongolia, uh, looking at the role of these social ties in helping to build disaster risk reduction. How do we make sure that future generations have a better shot when an earthquake or mudslide or COVID-19 comes through. Um, and we're finding uh, really great ways to in integrate bottom-up ties uh, into broader plans. We're also working on some plans in North America on COVID-19. We're really tracking as best we can, not only the number of cases, which we think actually reflects testing numbers, but rather things like excess deaths and also the number of deaths divided by the number of cases. We think those are more accurate measures of what's going on and trying to find for local communities what are the best public policies to help stop the spread of this pandemic. Sounds like you're going to be busy for a while. <laughs> <laughs> for a few years, at least. Thank you for coming on the show again. Thank you so much for having me. Black Wave, How Networks and Governance Shaped Japan's 311 Disasters by Daniel Aldrich is available now from Chicago University Press. Thanks for listening to New Books and National Security, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.